Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, how big of a splash did Perry Johnson make at CPAC? What's going to happen with the Michigan Republican Party headquarters building? Who are some top Republican U.S. Senate candidates? Guns in polling booths, national popular vote, 7th Congressional District talk. All this with Jason Rowe, House Elections Committee Chair Penelope Cerniglou, and Saul Anousis in this week's edition. Now joining Kyle Malin is MERS publisher John Rurink and reporter Samantha Schreiber. we got a jam-packed edition of the podcast today. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. We're going to kick things off here with political consultant Jason Rowe, former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Jason. Thanks for having me, guys. CPAC was this past weekend, and our friend Perry Johnson had a presence. He had a speaking role, which was not common among folks who are running for president. And he also had a reception where folks were able to enjoy uh, some food and drink on his dime. And then to to uh, kick it or to uh, finish it off, he got a third place in the straw poll with 5% of the vote. Donald Trump getting 60, and then, of course, Ron DeSantis in the 30s. And then they're at 5%, Perry Johnson. Jason, what do you think of that? Well, I think that that Perry was the beneficiary of most of the top-tier candidates, aside from Trump, uh, ignoring CPAC this time around. And I think in that vacuum, uh, Perry's money was able to secure him um, a a bit of a presence and a, a decent showing in the straw poll. You know, as we all know, John Yob, one of his talents is winning straw polls and in convention and caucus type atmospheres um, putting his candidates probably above where they would be naturally uh without uh his involvement so you know i i I think it must be fun for perry to do this but i don't think anybody's taking it terribly seriously is this this group used to have a lot of sway is it is it as reflective of the republican party as it as it once was not at all. Uh, you know, I, I attended CPAC for many years and, you know, I still remember the 2016 CPAC when Trump was being booed. It was far more of, I would say, a traditional movement, conservative crowd with a lot of libertarian types. And I would say within the conservative movement, it probably attracted a lot more of the libertarian types. Rand Paul always had a very strong presence at CPAC. But, uh, you know, 2017 is the last time I attended. I could tell you the conversion between 16 and 17 of more of that libertarian movement conservatism to Trump fan club was really a dramatic change, particularly given he was booed in 2016 when he uh, appeared. So it's a much different crowd. And, you know, I saw in some of the media coverage, they're now calling it TPAC, the Trump political action uh, conference. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And not just him. I mean, you look at who populated the stage and the programs, it was all Trump uh, surrogates. So it's definitely a, a Trump fan club now more than reflective of who the Republican Party or the conservative movement is. Well, let's talk about some other things here as we're looking at uh, the 2024 or 2023 and the, the maturations to get to 2024. Who do you think would make the best Republican U.S. Senate candidate? Well, I, I think there's three names that would be at the top of my list of those that could. I actually, you know, considering how thin our bench was for governor uh, last year, uh, we actually have of candidates that could stand up very credible campaigns and raise 
you know, serious money. I think actually about 10 names that you could you could look to. But I think the three strongest names would be the one who flirts with us every two years and never pulls the trigger, Candace Miller. Um, you know, one of the top vote getters in Michigan history, an incredible resume from uh, being the secretary of state to serving in Congress to working in local government. So I think she understands the interactions between all levels of government policymaking and the way Congress works better than probably any candidate we could field. She's uh, she did flirt early on and took her name out real quick. Um, I think former Congressman Mike Rogers would be a phenomenal candidate, especially as we look at Alyssa Slotkin as the likely nominee for Democrats. Uh, obviously, you know, former state senator, uh, longtime congressman, chairman of the Intelligence Committee, um, you know, pretty prominent in his time when he was on the Hill. I think he's a great matchup. I think he really reflects in a lot of ways who Michigan is. Uh, and then I'd say the third candidate that I think would be very strong is Lisa McLean uh, coming out of Macomb County. Uh, she has certainly let her name be out there, but you know, from everything I've seen is not necessarily taking steps to put together a campaign, not saying, you know, she's not interested. Um, she has expressed an interest in the past for statewide office, whether she follows up on it in this unique opportunity of a um, open seat remains to be seen. Uh, but, you know, she got elected into the House uh, GOP leadership. They don't usually give that um, a position in leadership. If you're going to go run for something else, they kind of expect you to stay in the House and lead within the House. And given the dynamics of that district, she probably has that seat as long as she wants to. So she would be giving up uh, a pretty comfortable perch uh, in order to pursue what is now starting to look like a little tougher climb for Republicans. Speaking of the tougher climb for Republicans, how do you see a uh, uh, GOP led by Christine uh, Christina Caramo interfacing with the Republicans' efforts to get that seat? In the US Senate. Well, listen, it, it complicates things. It is not the end of the world. Um, you know, throughout my career, I've worked in a lot of states in which the state party was non-existent as an entity, yet the you know Republicans perform well. You know, it, it really is a mechanical problem more than anything else. You know, there are there are institutions out there that can replicate many of the things that the party does and campaigns rely on. But the party is unique in being kind of a central clearinghouse for all those uh, entities to kind of coordinate and centralize operations. You're going to have, you know, what can be a top tier Senate race this election cycle. We've got three competitive congressional seats and the control of the House of Representatives all on the table. And so the party is really the best entity for the National Republican Senatorial Committee, the National Republican Congressional Committee, and the RNC with the presidential race, and with the Republican State Leadership Committee that focuses on state legislative races to kind of come together and coordinate efforts for um, our joint priorities. In the absence of um, a strong party, these folks are gonna probably operate within their silos and, you know, you miss some opportunities to leverage resources, coordinate uh, some of the activities, but I don't think it's the end of the world. And at the end of the day, what's really important is candidate quality. Um, you know, our biggest problem in 2022 was the two basic fundamentals of successful campaigns, and that is good candidates and the resources to finance those campaigns. And if you don't have the first, it's hard to have the second. And I think that was really our, our bigger problem in the last election than the environment even. 
Would you say that the role now of the Republican Party apparatus here in Michigan is more of a sounding board to establish, quote unquote, purity tests among who is true conservatives? Well, you're being generous by calling it a sounding board. I would call it uh, an enforcement uh, agency at this point. If, uh, you know, if you're not willing to walk the walk of the leadership of the party, you are deemed a rhino. And it doesn't matter your fidelity to conservative issues, to issues that Donald Trump um, is, uh, uh, you know, recognized for. Um, or, you know, just commitment to the party. You know, if you're not willing to go along with kind of a sycophantish devotion to Donald Trump and beliefs that the election was stolen in 2020, you're kind of disqualified from being, you know, part of the Republican Party as defined by this leadership. And as I've long contended, how do we as a party appeal to moderate Democrats and conservative independents and, you know, tell them that the water's warm, jump in when we're kicking out people that, uh, you know, are our fellow travelers within the conservative movement and have dedicated years, if not decades, to the party and to the cause. And so if we keep playing the, um, you know, politics of subtraction, it's going to be very difficult for us to build a uh, majority coalition in this state that can govern again. Uh, Assuming Donald Trump does succeed in his effort to get the nomination a third time, what does that mean for the Republican Party from your perspective? Well, you know, I, I would have thought the wake up call of what happened here in Michigan last year would maybe sober some folks up and realize that the path that we're going <coughs> pardon me, um, is not one that uh, leads to success at the ballot box. Um, you know, I thought the fever might break after that. And instead, we appear to be doubling down. Um, you know, listen, I think as we sit here right now, you know, Trump is definitely um, in the lead to secure the nomination, obviously the biggest name in uh, the, the the sweepstakes, if you will, is Ron DeSantis, who has already said he doesn't plan to make any announcement until after Florida's legislative session. So April or May is the earliest that we could see his entry, which is not that far off as we sit here now. Um, you know, Trump, I think, is better organized in going into 2024 than he was in 16 or in 20. I mean, 16, you know, that was obviously a very unorthodox campaign. In 20, he got to rely on the tools of incumbency. But now he's got to go run a campaign in a way he's not traditionally done it. He has brought on some very serious um, political operatives uh, throughout the leadership of his campaign who seem to be doing the right things and getting him prepared. Um, But it's going to be a real test to see you know, if Trumpism has staying power, uh, even after all these losses. And, and, you know, you can look at what happened on a national level under um, the years that Trump has been in power. We've lost control of everything um, more than once, even when you look at the U.S. Senate. And quite frankly, given the narrow margins in the House, if it weren't for the map that Ron DeSantis jammed through in Florida, we wouldn't even have a House majority. I mean, Florida netted out five Republican seats. Um, And so without what DeSantis did there in Florida, we would be in the minority still. And so on the national level, Trump doesn't have a very good record when it comes to uh, his influence on general election voters. Uh, All the key Senate races we thought we'd be competitive in, we lost, whether it's Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Georgia, Arizona. You know, those were Trump picked candidates for governor and for U.S. Senate. And we lost. 
uh, just in Michigan alone in 2018, we controlled everything. It was a deep and thoroughly red state. We had governor, attorney general, secretary of state, Supreme Court, a majority of the congressional delegation. We had the House. We had the Senate. We had uh, Oakland County Executive, Oakland County Commission, which, as you guys know, are really important uh, Republican positions in statewide races. And here we are just four years later, and we've lost all of those things. The Democrats control everything within our party. So if we can continue to we continue to go down this path, um, I, I don't see uh, us being in a governing position in Michigan or nationally. There is a lot of doom and gloom here, it sounds like, on the Republican side. But what is the yardstick by which we should be measuring Christina Caramo's performance as state party chair? Is it just as simple as wins? Well, no, because the party doesn't win elections. The party does the basic blocking and tackling that creates an environment that candidates and campaigns can effectively function. They're not our messenger. Um, they don't fund our candidates, regardless of how people like to look at these things. A, a lot of times they are the party is merely an accounting mechanism to move money um, into different buckets during the course of a campaign. Um, the measure really has to be, are we putting in the infrastructure and uh, mobilizing elected precinct delegates, of which I am one? And, and the expectation for precinct delegates when you run is that you're going to be foot soldiers for the party. Is the party able to mobilize and get folks out, uh, working their precincts, knowing their voters, advocating for our nominees, delivering the vote on Election Day? Uh, are they raising the money to fund those operations? And I, you know, the only metric we're really going to have between now and a year and a half from now is fundraising. And that's where I think there's going to be a real problem. I think there is a bit of naivete with uh, some of the grassroots folks that when it comes to small dollar fundraising, whether it is direct mail or digital fundraising, uh, they believe it's the who and not the how. And the who being who leads the party, money will just start flowing in because the right people are there, as opposed to the mechanics of how you raise that money. And raising money in direct mail and online is incredibly expensive. And even when you do it well, the margins are in the single digits. Um, it really is a very small net and you need major donors to fund party operations as well as small dollar programs to even deploy those fundraising mechanisms. And so if there is a belief that all of a sudden the grassroots are going to rise up and start making donations to the party, that's not going to happen. And even amongst the precinct delegates, I know here in Oakland County, when Rocky Rakowski um, was uh, overseeing his last meeting as chairman, uh, he, he made a point that of the several hundred delegates that had assembled for the county convention, about a third of them had made a donation of any size to the county or state party. And so when the people that are elected and purported to be our grassroots leaders uh, within the party can't even stroke a $25 or $50 check, that's not a good sign. And the howling from the state party charging delegates $50 to defray the cost of the convention was ridiculous. This is, first of all, 50 bucks. It is a nominal amount. And second, we're one of the few state parties in the country that don't charge a fee for a, a, a convention attendance. As you know, I spent many years in California. I think we paid $120 to attend every convention. And so this was not a novel proposal. It frankly brought us in line 
with the other um, state parties around the country. But the idea that these folks were so exercised that they'd have to make a $50 check to the party that they're elected to uh, participate in is a joke. What do you think the chances are we're going to have a Mackinac policy conference this year? Well, I, I, I wouldn't be very optimistic because I don't see a lot of the business leaders and corporations that historically have invested in that conference participating. I know I've been attending for many years, even when I you know, was living in California and in Washington, D.C., and I've noticed a very significant change in the composition of people that attend. A lot of the uh, business leaders and lobbyists uh, and major donors don't attend anymore because it's a hostile environment to people that uh, don't march to the tune of you know some of the folks within the grassroots. Uh, there's not really a return on investment for major funders that are willing to write a six-figure check. Um, as you know, they've often paired this with um, the Detroit Chamber's annual conference, and I can tell you from attending this last year, there was not the carryover of people that showed up for the Detroit Chamber event to the Michigan Republican Party as, you know, ferries full of Republican activists were coming to the island and that transition from one to the other. Uh, the ferries were full of business leaders that were leaving the island uh, to escape before the activists showed up. And so it, it's not the same environment and it doesn't uh, uh, have the same benefit to the folks that historically have funded it. And I don't think there's going to be the same level of national candidates that are going to show up as a result who often serve as the draw for some of those business leaders and donors. Um, one last thing we wanted to touch on here. I know that you've been working with Tom Barrett Um why Tom Barrett for Congress in the 7th Congressional District in 2024? Well, Kyle, I would say, why not? Um, listen, he was considering it, you know, whether Slotkin vacated the seat or not. Obviously, it's a much more attractive opportunity for him. But, I, you know, I think if you look at his resume, the kind of legislator he is, uh, he really is a prototype for being an effective member of Congress. You know, we've had over the, the last several years a, a lot of change within the congressional delegation. You know, Michigan was always um, one of the leaders in Congress. We had very serious chairman of A committees like Dave Camp at Ways and Means, Pete Hoekstra at the Intel Committee. Um, Mike Rogers at the Intel Committee, John Dingell at the Energy and Commerce Committee, Fred Upton at the Energy and Commerce Committee. Um, you know, Fred has left. He was the dean of the delegation. Um, believe it or not, Tim Wahlberg is now uh, the dean of the delegation. And, and Tim is probably towards the end of his career. Um, and so, you know, Bill Heisinga is about to emerge as a leader within the delegation. And so when you look at historically Republicans and Democrats, we've had a pretty high quality delegation. There's a lot of change taking place. And, and I think Tom would be a phenomenal uh, member of Congress. And, um, you know, and, and I think this time around, um, I, I don't know that there's any Republican that would challenge him in the primary. None have emerged. There hasn't really been any chatter. And I think on the Democratic side, you know, I don't subscribe to the idea that Alyssa Slotkin's actually a centrist. She talks like one, but when you look at her voting record, it's far from centrist. But she did a good job of presenting that image, and she was a prolific and phenomenal fundraiser. None of the Democratic candidates being talked about right now can replicate 
uh, the image that Slotkin has and certainly won't be able to raise the money. And I think with it being an open seat and a lean Republican seat, uh, Barrett's going to be able to far exceed the $2.8 million that he raised this last time. And I think when you look at um, a probably very progressive field of Democrats and an August primary, I think he sits in a very nice position going into 2024. All right. Well, Jason Rowe, a political consultant on the Republican side, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks, guys. Join us now for the podcast is House Elections Committee Chair Penelope Cernoglu. Thanks for joining us. And how are you doing, Penelope? I'm good. How are you, Kyle? I'm doing well. Okay, so we just had Jason Rowe on just a minute ago. He was really bullish on Tom Barrett in the 7th Congressional District now that Slotkin's running for U.S. Senate. Uh, What do you think? Is uh, Tom Barrett the person to beat? I think it's going to be a really good race. Um, And I really think that this district has been represented so well by Alyssa Slotkin that um, you know people are going to look for a candidate that's more similar to Alyssa Slotkin, um, which could be um, you know any of our Democratic candidates. Whoever they end up being, are you going to run for Congress? <laughs> Absolutely not. You've definitely got your hands full with the House Elections Committee right now, and one of the bills that you're starting off with has to do with banning guns from polling locations. Why start with that one? Well, this is something that has been, um, you know, kind of uh, in the works for a long time. Um, It's actually a a piece of legislation that was introduced um, last year. Uh, There was it was part of a package and um, it it just happened to be, you know, one of the things that, you know, was was ready a few weeks ago for us to move forward on. I've been working with um, Representative Young and Representative Hope on this package. And really, uh, with the implementation of Proposal 2, one of the big issues is hiring more election workers this year to cover those nine days of early voting. And in the past um, several years, we've seen really unprecedented increases in harassment um, and threats to our election workers. So we need to make every effort we can uh, to keep our election workers um, safe and ha- and be able to create an environment where instead of losing uh, those workers, which is sadly what's happening now, um, we're in a place where we can recruit um, and hire lots of new uh, people to take those jobs. Um, and of course, I mean, voting um, you know is one of our fundamental rights. And you know, I believe that all people have the right to vote and should feel safe when they're voting. And I believe that this is something that will uh, keep our voters and our election workers safe and free from harassment and intimidation. Penelope, has there been cases or uh, uh, situations you can point to for our listeners that uh, someone's been threatened by a, a concealed permit license holder in a polling place? So there's been over a thousand um, threats to election workers recently. Um, that are being investigated um, by the Department of Justice. And many of those threats actually do um, include gun violence and threats of using um, firearms to do things. I mean, at our most recent hearing, Clerk Winfrey described, you know, a person that was, you know, threatening her 
Um, and it was just a very scary situation. And, you know, many other election workers have had to step back from their jobs. They've had to be afraid because of these things. So so a lot of, um, you know, a lot of threats uh, have come up in these recent years. Is there evidence, though, that any of those threats came from a concealed permit license holder? So I don't have that information. I, I think a lot of them are still under investigation. I, I do not know, uh, you know, who the individuals were. Um, that perpetrated those threats. So, so I, you know, I couldn't say if if they're from, you know, who they're specifically from. But Valentine, you're no stranger to politics here. But what do you think is happening in our political environment that we've gotten to a point where we're getting these kind of threats uh, at a polling location that we actually have to entertain this type of legislation? Sure. So I, I think a lot of it has to do, um, you know, with the the whole. Um, election denier uh, kind of group that you know is and is you know suggestive that things are happening uh, in our elections that are um, you know fraudulent. I mean, all of that is you know completely um, unfactual, and all of that's you know been completely debunked. Yet there is still this very vocal minority of extremists who continue um, to push um, that philosophy on the public and un- unfortunately it results in threats and harassment um, and not only that just just you know kind of the extreme you know polarization you know at times between the parties and and that to me is just really um, really sad because I think that most of us uh, you know at most most citizens are not extremists and we're much more similar um, in what we want to see happen, you know, in our state and in our country and would like to work together um, on many issues. And myself being one of those people, and I'm really hoping uh, that we can move past those things and, you know, just have the conversations that need to be had. Now, there was uh, some hypothetical scenarios posed in committee about CPL holders violating the law by walking by a drop box and, and other type scenarios. Uh, do you think that those scenarios that were brought forward have some merit? So I think it's important um, to look at the purpose of this law, which is protecting election officials and voters from intimidation, um, threats and violence. And, and this provides a tool for law enforcement to interfere when bad actors are present. For example, uh, the most egregious example is from Arizona, where individuals of a particular group um, were hanging out near drop boxes in full body armor with military style weapons um, and recording voters as they approached the drop boxes. Um, so drop boxes are a new phenomenon, fairly new, um, but they're becoming increasingly popular with voters um, due to convenience and availability. Uh, so this is really new territory for all of us to navigate. Um, but my goal is to keep election workers and voters safe in all the places and all the ways that they want to cast their ballots. And I think this bill is a big step towards accomplishing that goal. Have you heard from any of your local clerks in your district that about the ability to recruit uh, volunteers? I spoke to a clerk last week and he said he's got some mixed results. So I'm just curious what's happening in terms, you mentioned threats. We've talked a lot about that. Sure. So I've, I've talked to um, clerks both locally and really just statewide. And I, I've increasingly, you know, heard that they are very concerned about recruiting uh, new workers, you know, for their nine days of early voting. 
Um, even, you know, all these issues aside, that's just going to be a lot more people that are needed to administer the, the early voting this year. So there's a general um, you know, consensus that this is going to be a challenge um, to recruit all the workers that are needed. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of challenges, you know, that are going to come along with uh, implementing Proposal 2. And that's that's definitely one of the number one challenges is getting people available for all those days. Um, so, so I, yeah, I have heard that from local clerks and from clerks around the state. You, you mentioned making them feel safe, but what else can the legislature do? I mean, is it, a, is it a throwing more money at the issue? I mean, what else What else do you, do you envision? What other steps do you yeah, envision? Funding is certainly going to be key. Uh, that with, that doesn't come through my committee, um, but I am working with the you know committee that it does go through, and I, I will be fully advocating, you know, for all the funds that are needed uh, to administer the election. So, you know, funding is always a concern. Aside from that, I, I think just doing, uh, you know, working with the clerks to make sure that the resources they need um, are there. And, you know, I have been working closely with the municipal clerks and the county clerks association uh, so that we can you know, get things in place. If, if there's a legislative change that's needed, uh, we plan to uh, do that so that to make their job easier and more effective and, you know, just put all those things in place. There's a lot yeah. of steps that you guys are taking right now to implement Proposal 2. Is that going to dominate, you think, the House Elections Committee here for the first several months? You know, we'll likely have a package um, coming up on uh, early voting and, um, you know, some things dealing with the permanent absentee list. Um, but we're also going to see a lot of other changes that are not necessarily part of Proposal 2 specifically, but they kind of walk hand in hand um, with Proposal 2 because they'll, you know, make things more consistent and just you know, make the process uh, kind of, I guess, more more sensible, really, in how it's administered, you know, by the clerk. So there'll be a mix. But yeah, Proposal 2 is really kind of a driving, um, you know, force behind that. So we, you are going to, we are going to see a lot of Proposal um, 2 related issues in our committee for the, you know, next uh, few months here, which is a good thing because we're, you know, increasing access and, you know, giving people you know, more opportunities to exercise their rights to vote. You mentioned earlier in the podcast that part of our climate right now politically is dominated by folks who are still skeptical about the election results of 2020. Do you have any reaction to a statement that Michigan Republican Party Chair Christina Caramo had just this past week that she's still not conceding her 2022 loss to Jocelyn Benson because of concerns of fraud, even though she lost by... 14 percentage points yeah i mean i am not really sure that there's much to say about that i mean she clearly lost um you know there's no facts that suggest otherwise and i mean she she doesn't have to concede but she's not the secretary of state right now so i guess that's a personal uh you know personal decision on her part one last thing that i want to touch on with you here penelope and and something i think that we may be facing here with the 7th Congressional District primary with Democrats. Andy Shore is doing an exploratory committee. Looks like Ingham County Clerk Barb Byerman is making noises. I wouldn't be surprised if she gets in. We could get other folks that we know in. And, it, and it's noteworthy to me because 
Barb Byram, Andy Shore. I mean, we're starting to talk about people who have mutual friends. I mean, this is this all of a sudden becomes a primary where that could get very difficult for folks in political circles because it's friends running against friends. I, I, I don't know if you feel that way, but I can certainly see that happening. Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I mean, I think you've described that very well. You're not going to run, so we don't have to worry about you as a friend running against all these other friends, too. So I guess I guess we've got that right. Yes, I, I, I have no interest in that job. I think it's a wonderful job and I think we've got some great candidates, but I'm um, I've got my hands full where I'm at and I'm, I'm happy to do this work. Well, we appreciate you making time today and speaking with us. House Elections Committee Chair Penelope Cernoglu, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having you know me. Have a wonderful call, day. You better call quick. Saul, Saul, you better call Saul. He'll fight for your rights when your back's to the wall. Stick it to the man, justice for all. You better call Saul. Joining us now on the podcast is the former chair of the Michigan Republican Party, and now he is working with National Popular Vote. He is Saul Anusis. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Very great to be with you guys. National popular vote is back in the legislature, but this time we have a Senate majority or a uh, Democratic majority that may be pushing this a little harder than prior majorities with Republicans. Republicans seem to have a hard time with national popular vote, and it's something that at the grassroots level has become kind of this unifying force. How do you break through that as, as somebody who's advocating for this among Republicans, that this is a good idea and that this isn't nationalizing elections? Well, I think as you point out, you know, in the last session we had 15 Republicans and 10 Democrats co-sponsor the bill in the Senate. And so it's always been kind of a bipartisan effort here in Michigan. But the problem is it's very easy to demonize. You know, and as you mentioned, you know, Democrats tend to knee-jerk for this because they think Al Gore and Hillary Clinton would be president. Uh, Republicans tend to knee-jerk against it because they think Al Gore and Hillary Clinton would be president. And as Paul Harvey used to famously say, then there's the rest of the story. And that's really what we're trying to, you know, describe. Look, very simply, we elect 514,000 elected officials in this country, all of whom who get elected by whoever gets the most votes, but one. Uh, ironically, the one that represents the country as a whole. Um, and so what we want to do is make sure that every state is a battleground state every time, that every voter in every state is politically relevant every time. And, you know, Michigan has had the benefit of being both a battleground state in some years and then also non-battleground states in other years. And we felt what the difference is, you know, when you're when people are paying attention to you, they know who your politicians are. They know who the leaders are. They tend to learn about the issues. They tend to pay attention to the issues that are important to your state. But when you're not on the battleground status, then you're completely ignored. And today, four out of five Americans live in states that are decidedly Republican or decidedly Democrat. And by definition, that means they're ignored in presidential elections. And so for all practical purposes, the real problem is we elect the president of the battleground states of America versus the president of the United States of America, which causes policy distortions and political distortions as well. So for the purposes of our listeners, could you explain quickly how the compact works, where you're at as far as the number of um, electoral college votes committed to the compact, and what has to happen in the state? Is it a majority vote? Is it three, two-thirds? I've had that question Majority vote. So uh, the state compact, it's an interstate compact and it's agreement between the states, very similar like uh, our lottery compact or the Great Lakes compact, where state legislatures agree to cast their votes um, for the winner of the national popular vote for president and send their electors under that circumstance. 
So today, 15 states plus the District of Columbia have uh, adopted this law, and nothing has changed because the law kicks in when you have enough when enough states that have 270 electoral votes or more join the compact. And 270 is the magic number it takes to win a presidential election. So when that group of states agrees to vote as a block, we will, by definition, move to a national popular vote for president. The Electoral College will remain in place. The delegates or, or um, electors will be sent to the Electoral College rather than a winner-take-all by state level. Those states that join the compact will send theirs based on a national popular vote. And so what you're going to have is you're going to have the winner of the national popular vote be president and the winner of the majority of the Electoral College uh, be president of the United States. And, and how many votes does the compact have right now? How many electoral So we have, the 15 states have 195 of the 270 needed. So we're literally 70, 72 percent there. Okay. So Michigan will bring you to 210 then. Uh, yeah, we, we need to get to 270. Right? right. So once what so until it happens, nothing changes. Mm-hmm. And realistically, I mean, not that's not going to change by 2024. But I think there's a very good chance by 2028 we'll be running presidential elections under a national popular vote. Are there other states other than Michigan that are kind of poised to to, to kick yeah, in this? We, we've actually passed it nine other states in a single legislature, and it hasn't passed both houses. So the Arizona House of Representatives actually passed it with two thirds vote, stuck in the Senate. Uh, the Oklahoma Senate passed it with two-thirds vote in the Senate, stuck in the House. Uh, two-thirds of the Georgia Senate has co-sponsored the bill, and it's passed out of the House committee. Um, you know, there are other states around the country. There, like I said, nine of them have actually passed it in one House or the other. And this is a process. This is a long, drawn-out uh, process because it's you're changing how you elect the president. You know, as you guys mentioned when you started out the, the show, a lot of the grassroots kind of knee-jerk against it, not really understanding how it works, why we're doing it, are we circumventing the founders, are we, you know, trying to get around the Constitution, et cetera. And it, it just takes time. And so on average, it's about a six-year per state process of, you know, talking to the political leaders, talking to the grassroots leaders, explaining it to the community. And then most people agree that, you know, just like we elect everybody else, whoever gets the most votes ought to win, and that's kind of what we're shooting for. And how does, you know, tackling that education barrier work? Because I I can't help but imagine that there's a lot of residents in Michigan, the type of residents that would be calling their lawmakers to back this who don't fully understand the popular vote debate. Yeah, you know, the irony is actually if you ask most people um, if, you know, whoever gets the most votes ought to win, most people would say yes. If you ask most people that, you know, whoever wins the most votes, do they win the presidency? Most people would say yes. Um, you know, until recently, very few people even paid attention to the Electoral College when we had kind of these diversion elections, you know, where one candidate wins a popular vote and another candidate wins the uh, Electoral College vote. Um, so it, it is a tough job. I mean, uh, you know, you're talking to grassroots people. I mean, I usually walk into a group and I ask them how many people think it makes sense to elect a president you know, using a national popular vote and, you know, 80, 90 percent of the hands go up and say, no, we think it's a bad idea. And then once you have the conversation, you know, kind of flips over where 70, 80, 90 percent say, well, that's pretty interesting. Not what I thought it was. It's at least worth considering. You know, look, I, I think the biggest issue that we try to explain, or at least I do from my perspective, I, you know, I got involved in this when I was chairman of the Michigan Republican Party in 2008. And for those of you who remember that election, I mean, Michigan was a battleground state going into October 19th. And on that day, uh, John McCain had that weekend had done a poll and they came out 12 points behind and strategically and rightfully so, given the rules of the game, decided to pull out of Michigan. 
Well, you know, Michigan's a purple state that goes red under the right circumstances. Yeah, obviously, from my perspective. And, and uh, you know, so when we lose in Michigan, it's usually a 47, 49% loss. When Republicans win, it's 50.5%. You know, you break 51% as a Republican and you, you think you've got a landslide in Michigan. And so, you know, instead of having that close election, when McCain pulled out, he publicly announced he was leaving. They took all the money that we had put up for the Victory Center, sent it down Ohio and Florida. And the Republican base vote went from 47, 49%, all the way down to 42%. So just by a factor of the turnout, we lost two Republican congressmen and nine state legislators, which was a devastating political year, primarily because voters knew their votes didn't matter. They didn't show up and vote. And so that creates a, a you know, kind of a, I mean, it perverts public policy in the sense that both Republican and Democratic candidates pander to the interests of battleground states and it per perverts politics because all of a sudden political decisions are being made based on who battleground states are, and they pay attention to the leaders in those states. And and it, it's just a horrible way to make public policy. So you just have to have a conversation and make sure the voters have an idea of what's going on and uh, have a chance to ask the questions and realize that we're not circumventing the Constitution. We're actually following the Constitution. Article 2, Section 1 says the state legislatures get to determine how electors are chosen. And we're just encouraging them to do it in their selfish best interest. And if you're not a battleground state, I believe it is in your selfish best interest to make sure your vote matters. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Representative Matt Maddock told us last week that national popular vote only makes sense if you're absolutely confident every single vote in America is free of voter fraud. So basically, you're a moron like Saul Anousis. Well, you know, uh, he's, he's entitled to his opinion. Um, uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that and say that, you know, with regards to you know, his kind of commentary there. But look, the issue is, you know, we elect 514,000 other officials based on who gets the most votes. So, you know, are, are, is he calling his constituents morons because the majority of them or plurality of them voted for him? Um, are the majority of the uh, people who vote for a governor morons because they voted for the governor? Um, you know, we elect every official up and down the line uh, based on whoever gets the most votes, but one. So I think it's an insult to the intelligence of the American voter and the people of his district if he thinks they're morons. But I think that, you know, people who are voting for their elected officials make a conscious decision who they want to represent them. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, people on average are intelligent. They pay attention to the issues. They care about the issues. They uh, read up on the candidates and they come out and vote. So, you know, I think this democratic republic that our founders created um, is is a phenomenal uh, form of our of government, of governance. Uh, we're unique in the world. Um, and the last thing I would refer to is anybody, you know, who backs the system, whether it's the founders or, you know, uh, Maddox constituencies or even the representative himself as a moron, I think is is kind of um, uh, below, um, you know, I mean, I, I, not the way I would have put it. Sort of moving on to state politics. Um, Saul, how does the ownership of the Michigan Republican headquarters work? And could the new chair sell it if she want, chose to? Uh, no. So the way when we bought the building back when I was chairman, uh, we moved to put it into a trust um, to basically preserve it long term. So the trust is basically made up of all the former state chairs. And then there are a couple of members. I think we had put our legal counsel and two other lawyers on as kind of permanent members um, for the express purposes of protecting it. 
Uh, I was the first chairman in a very long time that took over the party without a debt. Um, and 18 times before um, I had been chairman, people had used the building to kind of mortgage um, the building to get money. And then, you know, we probably could have sold the building to get money if they weren't able to raise money. And so we wanted to kind of institutionalize uh, the party and make sure that it wasn't, you know, dependent on whether a chairman had an ability to raise money or was a good fundraiser or a bad fundraiser, but that the party would survive. So the trust is set up basically to protect the building, uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, it's not there, but, you know, there, there is the opportunity. I mean, I, I guess like 90% of the state committee could say, look, we don't care. We don't want the building anymore. We want to sell it. Um, they could uh, basically do that, I guess. But I mean, the way it's set up now, um, it's, it's designed so that it can't be sold, it can't be mortgaged, and that it'll survive, you know, any one administration. How about the how about the data the party relies on? Is that owned by the party? Who owns the data? There's there's also a separate data trust that that owns all the data and the information. And again, that's more from an institutional standpoint. Um, but traditionally, just like they are this time around, the the building has been offered to the new party chairman. Um, there, it's basically at cost. You basically just pay the expenses, and the data is going to be turned over to the new party chairman. And so. Um, there's already been conversations. The legal counsel has been reaching out to various trustees and making sure everybody's comfortable doing that. And uh, based on the conversations I've had, everybody has said, yes, this is what we should do. This is the new chair who's been elected and they're in the process. And and uh, I know the former chief of staff is talking to the new chief of staff and the new legal counsel is talking to the trust legal counsel. So, you know, there's just a process to make sure you guarantee the, the, the integrity of the data and the information. and and how you handle it and make sure you understand what the responsibilities are when you take over the building you've got to pay for you know the utilities the taxes the insurance um so i suspect all that will be done in the next you know 30 days or so and you know i'm sure they can use it if they want it because it's it's there and there's people in the building as we, as we speak so what would be your advice to the new republican party leadership in michigan for handling the lack of money issue that they're facing well you know i think look uh, like any chairman, I think you have to put together a plan and then you have to reach out to the donor class um, to both small donors and large donors and make the case that you're going to be a good steward of the money that you have a plan on how to spend it and, and go out there and, and, and raise it. Um, you know, there's difficulties because, you know, a lot of the people who come into leadership, you know, back all the donors and, um, you know, went after people say this donor class, the establishment class, whatever they want it, you know, doesn't run the party. We don't need them, et cetera. Well, Okay, now you do. <laughs> the reality is, you know, it takes two things to win a, an election, you know, money and everything else. And um, as people learn that, uh, especially if they get into a, a, a leadership role, I think they, they find out what they have to do. I mean, I have to be honest, when I first ran for chairman, I did not think I was going to spend up to 80% of my time raising money. Uh, but the political realities on the ground were that that was what my job was. Uh, because if we didn't have the funds to you know, keep the office open to build an infrastructure, to open up phone banks, to fund literature, to organize literature drops, to put staff on the field. It's very difficult to run a statewide operation of a state of nearly 10 million people um, on, you know, smoke and mirrors. And so this is going to be a challenge. Um, I, you know, I just met her for the first time. Uh, she was at uh, at CPAC. So we ran into each other after after the program on, I believe it was Saturday evening. So I congratulated her on her race. I, I gave her similar comments to what we're talking about today, told her how much time I spent raising money, the challenges that were there. And I wished her the best of luck and gave her my 
personal cell phone number and told her to feel free to reach out anytime if I could give her any advice or share my two cents worth, which is really all it's worth at this stage of the game. But uh, um, uh, it's a, you know, it, it's a tough job. It's a lot tougher job than people think. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the uh, pomp and circumstance leaves about, you know, 15 minutes after you win that election and then you got to get down to reality. And, and it's a, it's a lot of hard work. What is involved in putting together the Michigan Republican Party's biennial leadership conference up on Mackinac Island that happens every odd year you know, right around late September? What, what's involved yeah. in that? Well, that's a huge effort. You know, I mean, we've now done that for 50 years in a row uh, or 50 times in a row, you know, 50 years got running uh, 27, some 28, some, I'm not sure what number we're on. Um, but it, it's it's a huge effort, and, and it's something that a lot of Michigan Republicans look forward to. Um, you know, it's it's uh, you're, you're putting together a, a grassroots uh, effort, inviting national leaders from all over the country to come in and, and speak to the uh, to the base, and uh, gets people fired up. And it's a great place to get your donors together and have a conversation. Um, you know, you've got to you've got to organize the event. You've got to obviously. You know, pay for the hotel rooms and the the meeting venues. Um, you got to go out and find sponsors who are willing to help underwrite the event because uh, it's not inexpensive. And so it's it's a it's a huge undertaking. Are you concerned it might not happen this year? Um, I really don't know. I mean, I, I'm not. Uh, you know, I haven't heard anything about that. But um, you know, I mean, that's a decision the chairman and the state committee have to make. But it's it's. Uh, um, you know, if they're going to have a hard time keeping the office open, they're going to have a hard time uh, running Mackinac Island, because, you know, the Mackinac Conference, because, you know, um, you know, the operational costs just keep the building open, probably run somewhere around 100000 plus or minus. And, and uh, I think we spend, I mean, back when I was even chairman, we were probably spending somewhere around a half a million dollars to do the conference between, you know, costs of people coming in and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's not a it's not an inexpensive operation. As you look forward to an open uh, Michigan Senate seat, what will what will the the issues with the party? How will that play for the Republican candidate? Well, look, I mean, this is one of the unique, unique opportunities. I mean, it's not very often that you have an open Senate seat, let alone an open Senate seat in Michigan, when arguably there's a pretty good Republican environment. So, if there's a Republican out there who ever wanted to consider running for the United States Senate, this is a good time to do it. Um, Look, you know, the, the party's job is to help elect Republicans. Um, they basically build the infrastructure. They uh, make the phone calls. They identify voters. They make sure we have an Election Day activity set up. They uh, organize the volunteers to run the, the victory centers, which, which is what we refer to them, which are basically your volunteer centers around the, around the state. Um, they build the list, uh, find out who's voting, who's not, what the issues that they care about. So. You know, these are all things that that uh, take a tremendous amount of time and a lot of volunteers. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm, I suspect, um, you know, there's a lot of new excited people in the party across the state. Um, you know, you've kind of we've kind of moved on from a lot of the traditional Republicans to more of the new MAGA, ultra MAGA type Republicans. Um, so I think all of the, you know, they're going to have to kind of get fired up and understand part of what their new role is. I mean, a lot of them have never been involved in the party before. Um, you know, if 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 they don't agree with that role, if they don't want to take that undertake that role, I mean, it's happened in the past. I mean, in fact, we have a recent example in Georgia where, if you guys remember, you know, Governor Kemp literally built a, a organization outside the party structure because, you know, there wasn't a cooperative effort, and and even Herschel Walker's campaign 
hired you know Kemp's campaign to basically run their effort because there were so many problems at the party level. So sometimes you do get in a situation where the party can be you know uh, not as helpful as it as it should be, or even or even harmful to the process. So there's ways to get around it, especially in the age of super PACs and and C4s and all that kind of stuff. So there there are structures that are available and. You know, even if you guys go back and remember, you know, Governor Granholm, when she first came in, uh, she and Mark Brewer, the chairman at the time, you know, had some disagreements and she organized a couple friendly county parties and literally ran her party organization through county operations and ignored the state party until they could come to some consensus as to how the party ought to work. So um, this isn't a unique challenge in Michigan. What are some Republican names that come to your mind when you think of someone who could be the equivalent to Alyssa Slotkin when it comes to aggressive fundraising for this type of race? Well, look, I mean, I think that we've got a very strong congressional delegation. Um, This is one of those mixed bags where I I prefer them not to run because this is the first time they ran in their, you know, newly drawn districts. And then, and I think, you know, want to make sure that they hold those seats. Um, But, you know, they all have an opportunity to do that. Um, I think that there's a chance that we'll get some, you know, partially self-funders, some successful business people who can come in and, and, uh, you know, write a big check and start the process. And that's often much easier to do because then you have people look at it as almost matching funds. You know, they add to the to the success of or the commitment that an individual has made, Um, you know, independently, uh, you know, Look, there's a lot of people that could go out there and do that. Um, you know, you take a look at some of our previous politicians, whether it's a Terry Lynn Land, who's been very successful as a secretary of state and, you know, is also runs a success, successful business, could do it. Uh, Peter Meyer, former congressman, you know, and, and he was always a pretty good fundraiser and he's got a report out there. There's, um, you know, again, I, I think the, the, there's probably a whole lot of potential people out there at this stage of the game. But, you know, people are. People have to make a political judgment, both, you know, do they want to do it professionally, personally? Um, you know, it's it's a big commitment uh, at, at the family level and not an easy task to undertake. So, um, but, I, but I'm, I'm very optimistic. I mean, this is going to be a good Republican year. Um, you know, uh, I think we're done talking about red waves and, and more looking at good, op- you know, red opportunities. And this is one of those. And then, uh, Saul, you were at CPAC, you said this weekend, how did Perry Johnson do? Um, well, he he uh, he came in third place in the poll, right? So that's pretty good. Uh, but uh, those of us who know his consultant, that's kind of their style. So they they did that well. And uh, um, look, Perry John, you know, I uh, I also met him for the first time this <laughs> this weekend, and and got got a chance to say hi to him. Uh, uh, he he was working the crowds. He did a whole lot of interviews. He uh, spoke on stage. They had a booth there, and and uh, you know, uh, making their introductions, making a case. I mean, obviously. Most people don't know who he is. Uh, the party activists don't know who he is. Conservatives don't know who he is. So, you know, he's out there introducing himself. But, um, you know, obviously he's got the resources. He's willing to put them behind it, behind his campaign. And, you know, he seemed like he was having a whole lot of fun. And that's an important fun- uh, function of campaigning as well, because if you don't have the right attitude, uh, this could be a very trying uh, undertaking. Uh, why do you think the national press hasn't haven't given him much ink? Um, primarily because I think no one's ever heard of him, you know. So when you're when you're kind of like the 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 underdog with with uh, you know no no political background, uh, um, you know, uh, just coming out of nowhere, uh, especially when you have some leading candidates. I mean, you got to look at who he's competing against, right? You know, not only is it you know former President Trump, you've got 
you know, DeSantis out there, Governor DeSantis, Governor Yunkin, another four or five governors, four or five U.S. senators, a couple of congressmen, former ambassadors, secretaries. I mean, you know, this is a crowded field and a big field with some very talented people. Saul Anousas, he is the former Michigan Republican Party chair and also a leader on the national popular vote front. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks to all our guests today, Penelope Cernoglu, Jason Rowe, and, of course, Saul Anousas. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio in Okemos. Thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. For Samantha Schreiber and the boss, John Rurink, I'm Kyle Malin. Until next week, take care. Thank you.